Welcome everyone to Radio Trivia Podcast Edition. This is episode 118, and uh, we have a very special guest. Everyone's special on the show, but this guy's really special. We have with us uh, this week. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we have us this time, Greg Leahy. Hello, I'm making my annual appearance still. I felt I've wanted to keep the tradition alive as that sort of <laughs> developed over time with sure. me really struggling to find time to do it back when I was editing RFN. Now I have a lot more time, but I'm not on staff, so I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it any more than once. But uh, <laughs> TYP, very gracious to allow me that, I would add. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to have you on here because um, you're a music enthusiast as well, so... And and if you uh you missed it, Greg was on a uh E3 special podcast of RFN, which uh, I thought you guys did a really good analysis, um just sort of dissecting the, the nature of the E3 presentation and the games available and what that really means for Nintendo. It was fun getting to talk to James again for the first time since the Majora's Mask thing. Uh <laughs> yeah, that, that that was good. And uh, it, it's but yeah, it's been I think fourteen months. Not even wow. you know a year. I think it's been actually a bit more than a year uh, since I was last on Radio Trivia. Uh, it, it almost feels longer. So much has changed. You know, last time I was still editor of RFN, and Mikey was still a bachelor, and Nintendo fans <laughs> worldwide were eagerly waiting for Pikmin Three to go. Oh, scratch that last one. No, I've, I've, I've blown it. That's that's right. I forgot. You were on like like a week or two before the big announcement came out. I it think. was a re- yeah, because it was PAX. That was like the, that's the time that I get to to do. It. Because you know, they're doing yeah. the, the show at PAX, and so that's that was when I got the chance to actually do a radio trivia because I wasn't committed to editing that weekend or whatever. Uh, but then, yeah, it was after, shortly after PAX that the uh, the the bomb was dropped. Alrighty, well, uh, we got five games here, uh, and uh, most of them are uh, Greg requests, uh, and uh, I think it's a very interesting lineup. Um, a lot of variety in this, and uh, and no secret import game like the last time I did this. So don't worry, <laughs> they're all available in North America this time, at least in theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. At some point, they were available in North America for some price. Uh, that's that's fair. <laughs>
Well, a nice atmospheric start there to get us going, with a distinctly eastern flavour, I might add, if that helps anyone, perhaps, uh, if it hasn't already immediately guessed what this game is. <laughs> your heartstrings are still intact after they've uh, received a thorough pulling during the course of that song. <laughs> it is a very nice song. So uh, we, we do have a question here for you. Um, I think I'll ask it. Very well. Which character from this game was revealed to the public by Nintendo World Report? Greg's uh, original uh, question used the word inappropriate, but I would... Um, oh, you would dispute that fact. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll discuss this more uh, after the third song. Very well. Very well. 
really do like that last song. It's got this great mix of being playful but urgent at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Greg, why don't you reveal what game this is? Uh, this game, if you haven't already guessed, uh, is indeed The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword for Wii. A game I swore I would never have on this <laughs> Well, you know, I did... I wanted to use this partially because I listened to the the last uh, episode of Radio Trivia 117 with James not so long ago, and there was kind of a discussion about you know certain Nintendo soundtracks not maybe delivering in recent years, and you know like as uh, mentioned of Mario and, and Zelda coming up as well. It's, it's mm-hmm. felt like a kind of a conversation I wanted to get in on, and, and Skyward Sword I felt <laughs> like was a good uh, entry point. Sure. Um, but uh, first of all, let us uh, dispense with the business of the question. Yeah, so I, I'm afraid my memory is a little bit hazy here, but um, basically, I believe this was E3 2009. Yes, uh, yes And, uh, you know, as Nintendo usually does, they have these roundtables, so-called roundtables, where uh, one or, or several high-profile Nintendo developers or producer types uh, are presenting some games that, that, you know, are being showcased at E3, and there's some, you know, Q&A at the end where... You know, press ask some questions. Well, I don't think the focus was on on uh, this new Zelda game, but uh, at some point near the end, so by the way, we, we, we kind of wanted to show off uh, this new Zelda game, uh, and, but we weren't ready for it, but we do have, you know, this piece of artwork. And, you know, they said, no photography, please, at the beginning of, of this. They often do that. They often say at the very beginning, Please, no photography during this roundtable session. So they, they showed off um, the this poster, which uh, is not pretty famous. It's a, a, a poster of Link without his sword and, and this a sort of ethereal uh, person kind of on his back, kind of ghostly figure. And, um, well, uh, one of us on, on uh, staff uh, uh, sneaked a photo of that um, very quickly. <laughs> And uh, we managed to post it. And it. It was this really, you know, it wasn't zoomed in or anything. So, so we had maybe like a, a twelve by twelve pixel wide actual picture of, of this thing, right? <laughs> and uh, but it, it was amazing. Uh, we posted it. Everyone was ecstatic about it. Of course, you know, they had asked us not to post the picture, but you know, press we're press, and if we're doing our job, we're supposed to break this kind of stuff. So. Um, this sort of analysis of this really cruddy picture, this little thumbnail uh, picture just just went um, viral and uh, some really good artists were able to reconstruct a very good um, rendition of it from this really shitty uh, <laughs> thumbnail. It was very impressive. Yeah, and Nintendo eventually sort of stepped in and said, well, you know, if it's going to be out there, then we'll may as well put out the, the full image, you know, in full resolution and, you know, you get a good look at it. Right, and, and I'm sure that someone at Nintendo would claim, well, we were always planning on revealing this as, you know, an E3 asset, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, I don't know why they bothered showing it if... If they didn't want this thing leaked, it was it was it was an odd thing altogether because of course they they, they didn't show anything else about Skyward Sword that yeah. year apart from this art. It was really just to say yes, we are working on it. And it, but it, at the same time, it was kind of fairly informative because the ghostly figure had what was recognisably the sort of a, a, a jewel like for that that looked like it was from the Master Sword, and of course mm-hmm. that ends up playing into uh, Skyward Sword the finished product because the character is Fee 
or Phi. I've never really known. What, is, do you know which is definitely? I, I, I've appropriate. always called her Fee. Yeah, Fee just seems more feminine, seems more appropriate. Yeah. But I, I've never actually heard it uttered out loud by anyone <laughs> that would be <laughs> definitive. But yeah, so it was Fee there, you know, with Link with his sword hand empty. You know, it kind of mm. it had quite a lot of information in there that it people did. started to kind of mull over. That ultimately sort of panned out to be true when the game came out two and a half years later. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we we knew that that was really the case by the next E3 when they had a real demo, where uh, you know they were help that you had that as your helper and stuff. So yeah. Um. So yeah. So uh, going back to the the topic of the music, I I think I tend to rag on Skyward Sword's soundtrack not because it's unpleasant or bad or anything. I mean, it has a very large, extensive soundtrack. But it does. Yeah. A lot of it is really more background. It, it, it actually reminds me a lot more of like a, a, a movie score in that it's really underscoring uh, the action. There isn't a whole lot of memorable themes. You know, there's maybe a few, but for the most part, it's just sort of pleasant or, or maybe slightly dissonant background depending on the lo- the location yeah i mean a lot of them are very they do tie in nicely with the location but for instance the first sure. song is from the dungeon the ancient system which is the one that's very buddhist themed you know the mm. big golden figures and that that bit where you go down into the sort of depths with all the zombies and all that <laughs> so apparently based on some buddhist tale or something mm. um you know and, and then the soundtrack is kind of a pro as i said you know that eastern kind of flavor yeah. kind of thai kind of sounding uh, it, so that all these different locations kind of have these soundscapes that are very appropriate, but it doesn't necessarily come together as a kind of cohesive uh, soundtrack because of that, to some extent, I would say. I mean, you, yeah. contra- you contrast that with Sky uh, with Skyward Sword, <laughs> with Twilight Princess. Twilight Princess has a similar range of locations and, and musical styles to some extent, but it has a very strong central theme, you know, the one from the overworld. Principally, mm-hmm, sure. But it, they weave it into all sorts of different scenarios. Whether it's the sort of Western style uh, bit in the hidden village, you know, like the the, the showdown uh, yeah. bit uh, in, in the streets of that little dusty Western style village, or whether you're out in the sort of Arabian style of the Gerudo Desert, or whether you're hacking the the boss at his weak point. It's like it weaves that central theme into all of it in mm-hmm. very different ways. And while that does, I'm not always the biggest fan of relying too much on like a, one motif or whatever. I mean, there's obviously there's more than one in Twilight Princess, but that central one is very strong. But sure. I think the way they do it, it does... It First of all, I'm just very fond of that. That's probably one of my favourite overworld themes in the whole series. But secondly, just how well they apply it in other places. It gives this sense of everything tying together being of a piece that Skyward Sword probably doesn't have really because it is a bit more eclectic it's, it, it is yeah. uh, and I mean the big thing before Skyward Sword came out was of course that they were going to have live instruments you know which they'd right. done some stuff with Super Mario Galaxy that way Zelda games naturally going to have a bigger soundtrack than a, a Mario game so I wasn't necessarily expecting everything to well I mean even in Galaxy not everything is, is live uh, Galaxy 2 gets close but you know, uh, I expected you know a range of, of live instruments, and a lot of it is the the battle themes are kind of like the mo- which uh, the third song was one, the mini boss theme. But you also get the one for Girahim, the fights against him, mm-hmm. and there's a few others for different bosses that get used a couple of times. That are they're, they're all really good. I think they're fantastic, and they definitely have greater weight 
for me than their counterparts in other Zelda games because they use the orchestra and, and use them very well. So that was that's definitely a positive. But there did seem to be I detected when the game came out a kind of people feeling a little bit underwhelmed, like they thought it was going to be this humongous kind of hoping in, in a way that it was going to be like a, the most cinematic score yet. Yeah. Um, and like you say, in some ways maybe it's almost a bit too cinematic in a way because you've got these kind of more ambient tracks. Uh, but right. I, I, I honestly, I mean, how I feel about Skyward Sword is I, I certainly don't dislike the soundtrack. Uh, there's songs I do like, and I kind of pick three of them out here. But um, it's, I, I feel like procedurally they kind of did everything right. Like the ambition is there, and you know, the fact that they're bringing in the live instruments, all these things, like that's all correct. Uh, but maybe the results just weren't quite as good as other Zelda soundtracks in terms of like, what well, if you're looking for those memorable melodies, it doesn't right. quite deliver on the same level as some others. I mean, you, the compositions of overworlds and. and Sometimes dungeon themes, they just they didn't have the same punch as as uh, you know. If you think back to you know Ocarina of Time or or uh, you know Link to the Past, some of these Wind other Waker. Zelda games. I mean, Wind Waker, I would say, has got like a certain amount of consistency with that sort of like that Celtic kind of sound mm-hmm. that, that came in with that. That again, I don't think Skyward Sword has. I mean, certainly you spend enough time in some of these locations because the, you know, the when you're going back to the bits on the on the surface a, a number of times, like you will hear those songs many many times, and yet they're not really going to be all that memorable in, in many ways because they're not meant to be. I mean, I, you right. know, because again that that's the the intent that they went with but um you know i i just think the the ambition and all that was fine i i I would contrast that with in terms of this larger discussion of recent nintendo soundtracks is you know new super mario brothers super mario 3d land or even phantom hourglass where they didn't really seem all that interested in bringing in new music at all you know, I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the bar was set really low. I mean, it's almost like what they would say in movie terms is a temp score, you know, where they just throw bits of music that they've already got from other things together to kind of roughly uh, make it seem kind of right. Uh, and then they just end up sticking with it. You know, like mm-hmm. that, that's kind of what you got in those games yeah. uh, to, to a large degree. And, and that's the thing. I mean, Skyward Sword is so far away from that. I mean, they are clearly put a lot of effort into this soundtrack. And there's definitely big areas where it succeeds but I just I, it wasn't quite the home run as it were that I think a lot of fans are kind of hoping for well we, we haven't really had a chance to talk much about the game itself um, we've already spent probably enough time on this game already <laughs> a well travelled topic about 18 yeah. months ago yeah okay but no but I, mean, I, I did play through it again not so long ago actually um, uh, in the hero mode uh, which uh, you know it's a bit like a sort of master questy kind of thing with the additional damage and all that and uh, you know I think that one of the problems with playing it for a second time is that that sense of fatigue of revisiting the locations uh, is m- it, the onset of it comes much more quickly shall yeah. we say uh, so it's, it's well, I mean that's always something of an issue with Zelda I guess but and what really did strike me I think the second time playing it is just how you know when they were talking about blending uh, elements of dungeons and overworld together you kind of thought about metroid you know that mm-hmm. it was zelda and metroid have always been you know a little close but maybe there's always blurring the lines even closer and there is some of that in the way the level design works and how you kind of open up shortcuts to that traversal kind of different sure, sure. forwards and backwards but 
it also the second it's just like how much this is kind of the Mario 64 of Zelda games in that it really is about taking a few playgrounds and remixing them to do different things in them over and over again and you even fight a boss in a giant circular arena three times in the form, <laughs> in the case of the imprisoned so uh, yeah that, I, didn't, I didn't make that connection but you're right there's it feels like there's a lot of reuse a lot of fatigue and and I don't know. I, I guess some people like those spirit collection or don't have. I had a lot of trouble with those, and they just totally pissed me off. And, and so when I think of blurring dungeon with overworld, that's what I think of. Is like, oh, we'll have this kind of dungeon-like uh, challenge that you have to get through in, in the overworld. And um, I, I just remember in several occasions, you know, spending ten minutes or whatever on, on these things and then dying on the last one or dying oh, trying no. to get back to yeah, the... It's, it's awful when you do fail. I, I, it, it didn't uh, happen. It probably happened at least five of them I think, isn't there? Or four? And, yeah, there are four uh, or five of them. There's one in Skyloft. Yeah, that's in Skyloft. It's a, uh, there's, there's one which I think I think I failed twice in the in the first time I played the game and that feels bad. Like, oh. you know, play, playing it once and you've got, if you sail through it it's not too bad but if you fail it's, uh, it's kind of tough. But I like the density of the environments versus the more sparse overworld elements in previous 3D Zelda games. I think the problem was just that in the end the, 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 the proportionality was out of whack for me in that they did try to reuse the they went to the well one too many times at least. Uh, when you get to the point of like okay well now the volcano's erupted and you've lost all your stuff and you've got to get it back. Uh, for, oh. you know, they, they, oh. They've really gone too far at yeah. that point and I, I just feel like if you could have rebalanced it so that there was perhaps at least one other completely different area uh, to go along with the three ones, you know, the, representing the three parts of the trifles, I suppose. You know, I think a fourth area on on par with what the other three offer, and so the content wasn't kind of sp- well, those areas weren't spread as thin in terms of providing content to the player. Would have been would have balanced that quite nicely. Again, I think it's more a bit of a more of a problem in execution than the idea. I quite like the idea. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the issues are really with execution, and, and uh, you know maybe we can get Koji Kondo out of retirement to write some you know memorable stuff. Yeah, I, I certainly do hope they stick with more uh, live instrument stuff because just something uh, from E3 just recently you mentioned it on the, one of the shows there with the, the the sort of live trombone is it? Or what, what, I'm not sure which brass instrument it was in the Zelda bit, a Link Between Worlds demo. You know where he's got the the song from A Link to the Past just pretty much done, but done with that that live instrument. It's it for me. It's like I, obviously I've heard that song for goodness knows how long playing A Link to the Past as many times as I have but when you hear that in the demo from E3 it's like oh like that's what they were thinking of like that's what was in their head when they wrote that for the Super Nintendo and yeah. now it sounds alive you know mm-hmm. like I, I, it's something that, that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited about what they could do when they actually you know, push the boat out and bring these live instruments into it with, with the, the beloved franchise soundtracks all right, well, we've uh, spent plenty of time on this game, so let's move on to the second uh, request. Well, the Greg request, I guess. Yes. Not let's move list. on to the second game, also requested by Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
an interesting blend of sort of synthetic uh, instruments for uh, audience to chew on there as to uh, the source of this game. Well, uh, this game has a very interesting soundtrack. So um, if uh, if you don't enjoy it, I'm sorry. They have kind of long songs in this game, but uh, I, I like it. Yeah, much lo- much much longer loops than is sort of customary for for games of this type. I would say. Yeah.
A very interesting uh, bass in that song. Yeah, and again, with these longer loops, it kind of takes you more different places, you know what I mean? It gives it, it's a broader canvas to work with. Uh, uh, it can be quite entertaining. Yeah, it kind of meanders into a couple of different places before yeah, returning uh, to the main theme. That's right, but uh, I have a feeling most of our listeners are probably going to at least need a helpful bonus slash hint question to uh, get a shot at guessing what this might be. Sure. Well, why don't you ask the uh, question? Yes, here? very well. Okay. This, so, this game's British development team was named after which American feature film based on Greek mythology?
Well, that was getting very much towards uh, European dance music circa <laughs> 1995 or something. Uh, for not coincidentally, uh, <laughs> yeah. by the way. But yes. Yeah, so uh, first of all, we'll answer the uh, the trivia question there. So the the British development team that made uh, this game was named after the film Jason and the Argonauts, uh, which uh, coincidentally we just came up on that Ray Harryhausen classics 50th anniversary uh, just the other day. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, the Argonaut Software, who you may know as the people behind the kind of the tech on the Super FX chip uh, that gave us Star Fox on the Super Nintendo, uh, their head uh, at, at the time was uh, a man named Jez San. So uh, they thought it'd be very funny to call themselves Argonauts. So you had Jay San and the Argonauts. There you go, a bit of wordplay from the British there. <laughs> but. Uh, this game is Vortex. Uh, so this is a game that they made after uh, Star Fox, which where they kind of did the tech side, the programming and all that kind of on Star Fox. And I guess Nintendo kind of oversaw the game design. But uh, in the case of Vortex, which was a, a very rare Super FX chip game, that had nothing to do with Nintendo in terms of, you know, they didn't publish the game anywhere in the world, they didn't help design it or anything like that, it was just, you know, Argonaut made it I think in America it was published by something called Electro Brain Yeah, uh, never <laughs> heard of them before No, no not at all <laughs> uh, So it's kind of weird to have this kind of, what was a kind of cutting edge game you know, there weren't very many of these polygonal you know, uh, Super FX chip games on the Super Nintendo kind of be so obscure as this game is because it isn't very well known it wasn't published by anyone uh, terribly famous and but uh, I guess over here perhaps uh, there is the accusation that you know, it got like really positive reviews and there is kind of the, this perception that well if something's developed by someone British then it always gets an easy ride from the British <laughs> magazines because they're all chums or something uh, but the funny thing is is, you know, this did get excellent reviews uh, when I was reading the magazines uh, for, for Super Nintendo uh, back in the mid-90s, but it, I was never quite persuaded to buy it, and I think in part that was because there was always this sort of looming thing of Star Fox 2 you know, like, well sure. Yeah, that's going to be the real deal. Yeah, you know, as a follow-up to Star Fox. Yeah, you because know, this it did kind of look like a, a follow-up to Star Fox. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess anytime you can have polygonal graphics on the Super Nintendo, they were going to kind of look similar because there was only so much you could do. Well, yeah, you know, I'm I'm glad you chose this game. I hadn't heard of it, but um, a- actually, uh, uh, Guillaume and, and Jer were at my place uh, before E3, and um, they're perusing my catalog, and they pulled out X for the Game Boy. Ah, yes. uh, So he he busted out the Game Boy Player, and I I attempted to show them, even though this thing's in Japanese, and I have no idea how to play the damn thing. And because there's a lot of menus, and like they're telling you missions that you got to complete. It's like, oh, really? I I don't know what to do here, you know. I've thought about importing that in the past. I'm kind of glad you told me. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 a difficult game if you can't read the language, because it really is like, hey. You got to go over here, and maybe you're supposed to destroy these guys, or maybe you're supposed to find something. And and the whole, um, I mean, X is is a wireframe game, but other than it being wireframe, it really does look a lot like Vortex. Uh, it, it's kind of this open world roaming area. You can pull up a map and see we are in this large map area. And they have these tunnels you go into uh, yeah. to traverse, and and there's there's something very similar in Vortex. 
Um, so in a lot of ways, it really does look very similar. And I, I'm sure that they curbed a lot in terms of game design and in Well, and of engine. course, it's it's the same connection again, isn't it? Dylan Cuthbert, it is. Argonaut. It, is exactly. you know, it, it goes back to those first sort of you know, the X on the Game Boy. It was kind of the first tests. You know, the, the, you know, he was this whiz kid that ended uh-huh. up joining Argonaut and then went over to Japan after that. And, and, and now, of course, he runs uh, uh, Q Games. But, uh, you know, he, he developed this, this crazy tech demo with 3D graphics of a sort on Game Boy. Right. You know? And, uh, yeah, that kind of runs all the way through to Vortex, which, like I say, Argonaut made by themselves. Uh, and the thing is, it kind of, it's got a lot of features in it as well that, that would would have been in Star Fox 2 had that ever came out obviously because that that was basically finished wasn't it Star Fox 2 but they kind of canned it because they didn't want to confuse people like N64 is where you get 3D not for you on Super Nintendo but a lot of those ideas were already kind of in Vortex because with Star Fox 2 it was more about all range mode yeah, mm-hmm. which is what they call it in Star Fox 64 when you're actually you're freely flying around and having dogfights and things. Well, um, and you had a, a ship that could transform from like a walker into the R-Wing. Well, in Vortex, you've ba- basically got a vehicle that can transform between four different uh, modes. You've got like principles sort of mode seems to be the walker character. Uh, and then you've got uh, a kind of a, a jet flying thing. You've got a, sort of, uh, like a defensive mode that's got like a tank. And then a speeder mode you know, to, to traverse distances quickly. So you're switching between these modes in free roaming environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're killing enemies and stuff. And the thing, if that sounds ambitious for the Super Nintendo, uh, from is. what I, from what I've read <laughs> about the game, it really does sound like it is. I mean, because you know, I mean, think of the controller. Think about the frame rate. You know, <laughs> if you think about the original Star Fox. I mean, it, it it again, it got great reviews at the time, and I could definitely see what because it was ambitious. You know, the, this is the kind of thing that impresses uh, reviewers at the time because they haven't seen stuff like this on the system before but then I, I've always the reason why I've never kind of gone back to it having missed out on it initially by the sort of the, the promise of Star Fox 2 which was ultimately broken um, is just that I always feel like God it's probably really you know it's, it's probably so dated and, and tough now I just I don't know whether I would really have the patience with it yeah. to, in, to enjoy like, I probably would have enjoyed it at the time because I would have been persistent enough and had enough free time to just like because apparently it's punishingly difficult in addition to being kind of cumbersome because of the limitations of Super Nintendo control uh, but so you would have had to really apply yourself I think to get the most out of this and I just can't see although it's not that difficult to find it's not that expensive to find as a cartridge now either in Japan a Japanese version North American or even European but it just I've, I, it's never cheap enough to make me think I'm actually gonna kind of get my money's worth even though it seems like a kind of perfectly admirable project yeah like i said i think it shares a lot with x in terms of game design and and the graphics inherently are kind of abstract so it's kind of difficult to discern what you're doing um less so with vortex than x but it's still i mean i already had that problem enough with star fox but star fox is more directed more linear yeah the fact that it's on rails is a bit which i think was something that nintendo really wanted when the that was a nintendo decision to kind of confine the original star fox to that um you know and i think that was a good decision because as, as kind of boundary pushing and enterprising as it was to do the kind of things that they did in Vortex and what they were doing with Star Fox 2, I just don't think the Super Nintendo was really ready for that and have it be really fun. I think it just would have been a novelty 
and then kind of the harsh reality of how kind of uh, cumbersome it all is might crash down. But you know, I, have, I must concede I've never actually played it, so I don't really know for sure. I mean, it's one of these things where you know, if it were on the virtual console, maybe with some sort of like save states or something, that I could always have that promise of like of easing my passage if that was a real concern. Because I've read some reviews which just absolutely hate the game almost entirely because of his difficulty uh, which you know, I'm not averse to difficult games but still it, that's kind of alarming when you see that kind of thing but uh, to kind of go back to the music a little bit of course uh, Arkanaut were a, a British developer and, and this uh, not being like part of Nintendo or anything the composer in this case was British a, a chap called Justin Charvona and uh, he had a background in composing music for the computer games that were big in Britain and other places in Europe at the time so you know Amiga Commodore 64 uh, stuff like The Last Ninja 3 for instance he actually did the soundtrack to that which has the ignominious distinction of I think being perhaps the only virtual console game that was pulled from the service for simply not working Ooh. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> it basically, it was like a bug that, like, after the first level, it just died, like, almost all the time. And you know, how this got past testing, I've no idea. But anyway, so he had this background in that kind of music, and I think you can still detect that even on the Super Nintendo uh, sound capabilities. There, you know, some of those very more explicitly electronic sounds that of air in the soundtrack it definitely reminds me of what I've heard of the Commodore 64 uh, SID uh, SID music uh, that that you hear online Uh, I was never part of that scene it holds no kind of nostalgia for me but uh, it's interesting to hear a Super Nintendo soundtrack which has certain instruments and elements that are distinctly I think Super Nintendo to be also infused with these kind of electronic and dancey sounding kind of elements uh, that he brought to the table from his background so so it is uh, a, a Super Nintendo soundtrack quite unlike most I've heard. Yeah, I think it really does show the versatility of, of the Super Nintendo sound chip. It really, people could use it however they saw fit, really, and bring whatever samples they wanted. That was always kind of the thing for the people in the UK that were the sort of advocates for the, the computer scene. One of the things they would always say is, you know, the, the, what the Commodore 64 sound capabilities could do was far in advance of something like the Famicom or the, or the NES. Uh, because, I mean, obviously that was very old, kind of, te- it wasn't even that, like, uh, cutting edge in 1983 when it came out in Japan. You know, so, and, and you know, the Master System was no better. So, you know, th- those games did tend to have richer kind of soundtracks uh, during the 80s. Uh, than the console games did but then when you got a super uh, Genesis Mega Drive again wasn't that sort of rich but then Super Nintendo I think was was something that did legitimately uh, help someone like uh, the composer in this case actually kind of take it to another level beyond where he'd been on, on Commodore and Amiga and all that well, uh, that's Vortex. Uh, I'd be curious to know if anyone's actually played this game. Yeah, um, I'd like to hear people like how it holds up today, how they enjoyed it at the time, if they played it way back then. I, I, um, it's just one of these games that I've always had an interest in, but never got the chance to play it. I can't imagine a chance in hell it will get on virtual console because of the defunct publisher. We haven't had any FX chip games. I mean, it's it, it pretty much cartridge or bust by the look of it. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, well, we're going to move on to the third game, which is a listener request. Uh, the fear of the unknown kicks in. 
this is that awkward moment where I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I've played this game before, but I have a feeling the thing I'm going to say it is is going to make me look like an imbecile. (laughs) (laughs) We got two more songs, so don't don't worry about it too much. feeling a bit reassured now. Did I mention I'm not terribly fond of the soundtrack? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bit too much Eastern flavor in this one, is there? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's what the listeners want, so. Uh, well, uh, by definition, uh, in this case. Yeah. Um, all right, well, here's your question. What game is popular in this game and is explored in the game's extra chapter? Mm-hmm. 
I'm ready for you to uh, ask me what the game is. <laughs> Greg, which game is this? I believe, I'm going to look very silly, <laughs> this is The World Ends With You for DS. It is. It is exactly that game. And it was requested by two people, uh, Maylene from Garland, Texas, as well as uh, Drew Saros, I, I assume is how it's pronounced, also known as Ragnablade in the forums. So... I must say, I'm quite surprised this hasn't been used before. Uh, it's because it, it's you know it's quite old at this point, isn't it? It's like 2008 yeah. or something. And I want to uh, say 2007. It, yeah, it probably was actually at least in America. Um, and you know it's, it's quite popular and uh, yeah. well thought of and whatnot. So yeah, I must say. But uh, of course, I know this from where we did it in uh, retroactive a few yeah. years ago yeah. on RFN. Episodes 221 and 224, for those interested in, in going back. Yeah, that, that's probably going to be a much more cogent account of my <laughs> thoughts on the game than whatever I can uh, rustle up from the darkest recesses of my brain now. Well, I, I gotta say, I don't know what the heck to talk about with this game, because, uh, I mean, I was just reading the plot line, and it just seems so contrived and... Convoluted. Convoluted, I, I, there it's you go. A certainly uh, is, is the word that comes to mind with it, uh, uh, but, I, I mean, with, with regards to the music and the, the aesthetic in general, I think it did a very good job of creating a sense of place, which mm-hmm. is important for the game. Um, for me, personally, it wasn't a place I liked being in all that much. Uh, I wasn't like... You don't like Shibuya, huh? Uh, Well, this sort of weird, bizarro, alternate, spiritual Shibuya, whatever it it was. Uh, But, you know, I I wasn't like dreadfully averse to it or anything, but it wasn't, you know, like my favourite kind of game world. Uh, Mm. But certainly, you have to say, at least from my point of view, I haven't played uh, terribly many games that have that kind of setting. I mean, it's just a, a, a nice in many respects to play an RPG that, you know, isn't in a completely, you know, uh, stereotypical, you know, overused fantasy setting sure. at this point, you know. So, I mean, I appreciated that about it. Sure. Um, I guess the soundtrack has a is kind of an eclectic mix of musical styles that don't terribly appeal to me. I, I don't know. I mean, there's some good songs here that I like, but some of them are maybe more hip hop like or, mm. or I don't know if the right word be grunge. I really am not good with with uh... <laughs> with musical. No, I, I don't I don't think grunge is appropriate. But then I am not the man to ask. I, about I'm not either. <laughs> genre definitions with music, uh, but yeah, I mean it's what what I found about uh, the music in the game is that you know I, I, it wasn't something I really enjoyed like certain uh, RPGs you know where it kind of that becomes like a, a big part of the experience but at the same time like, I mean there's certain handheld games and perhaps especially RPGs which I would play almost the majority of it with the sound off because just you know you're doing something else at the same time like I've played goodness knows how many hours of Fire Emblem Awakening on 3DS without the sound on yeah. Uh, you know, I've been mean, probably after the first so many hours just because that's how it got. But in this case, I did. I always, you know, kept listening to the music. I mean, partly because I wanted to comment on it in the retroactive. I didn't want to sit there during that retroactive and the topic of the soundtrack comes on. I go, oh, well, I didn't listen to any of it, so I have nothing to say. You know, it wouldn't have right. been uh, terribly professional of me. But at the same time, you know, it didn't. Uh, I was perfectly willing to keep listening to the music just because I think uh, it did help establish that kind of sense of place. So uh, there's this bonus question here about um, 
uh, this little kind of mini game that's popular yeah, the, the, amongst this the kids. craze or whatever. So this is something to do with I can't remember what they're called, but it's like bottle cap type thingy, like yeah. these spinner things and all this kind of stuff. But it features early on in the game, and then yeah, in the kind of the bonus chapters if you ever got that far, which I did not. Uh, yeah, so it's called Tin Pin Slammer. Ah. But uh, you're right, it, it kind of has a sort of bottle cap type of appeal. You collect pins, and then I guess you use them in, in this little battle system. Yeah, I mean, with the battle system, like the pins would be like special powers, and you know, like they would have recharge times and all this kind of thing. And, and that, I would say, was probably what I got out of the game most, was this very unique uh, battle system where you, you use the two screens, uh, it used the fact you, you were using kind of button input alongside uh, touchscreen stuff. You're very kind of ambitious in a way in terms of using all the different aspects of the through of the DS, I should say, uh, uh, the hardware design. Where you know, there were a lot of games coming out at that time, you know, where the DS kind of usage was like token or superfluous uh, or just bad. You know, I mean, in this case. You could argue it was a bit much, you know, like a bit like rubbing your belly and the patting your head, all this kind of stuff. But Aren't you supposed I, to use the microphone at one point, or I think that yeah, there, there was. A, I think this was referenced in retroactive, actually, that there was some uh, pin or some situation that required blowing into the microphone, oh. which is like the the uh, sort of that typifies the kind of token use of the DS hardware from probably a couple of years earlier in its life, really, where that was at its height. Uh, but actually, I mean, in general, that kind of stuff aside, the battle system and how it used the hardware was one of the things I really liked about it, especially in an RPG, kind of going with the different setting uh, and all the other things that were unique about the game. It really did make it feel very different. You had know, this kind of brawler-type quality to it, but obviously, you know, the way you were putting the inputs in, it was completely different from any brawler you've played, uh, and uh, the, the look of it as well. The look of the battles had a great kind of um, impact to them. So uh, that's that's that, those are my fondest memories of playing the game for retroactive. Cool. Uh, thank you for dredging up those thoughts, Greg. <laughs> yes, but again, go back to the source. I'm sure it'll be better. <laughs>
sweet. <laughs> That's all you have to say. That's all I have to say about that. It's pure badassery. Incredibly catchy uh, little song there, but I wonder if I wonder if people have gotten onto the series with this, even if maybe not the particular game. Just from those, I don't know. They know it's a series now, though. Do you want to give them another hint? Yeah, well, they, I think this bonus question kind of gives that away too, but uh, hopefully it maybe will help them. So this game features a hero trying to rescue his son, but who is the hero's great grandson?
Well, I hope the uh, the question, as well as the song, the questions were suggesting a dynasty of, of heroes and the songs have uh, led our listeners to guess that this is indeed a Castlevania game. But uh, this is actually the other Castlevania 2, Belmont's Revenge for the Game Boy. So you did Castlevania 2 Simon's Quest not that long ago mm-hmm. on the show, didn't you? Uh, but this is a kind of odd thing because the original Game Boy Castlevania is, is Castlevania The Adventure. But then when they did a sequel to that game, they dropped the whole adventure sort of suffix and just <laughs> went straight to Castlevania 2, Rambo 3. <laughs> so, not at all confusing. Yeah, so that was, that was pretty odd. But uh, I had to kind of go with this when I was looking at things to uh, include. Uh, first, we've got to have a Konami game if I'm on an episode. doesn't matter <laughs> if it's Silent Hill, Axley, Gradius. There's got to be something. Uh, uh, the course of Castlevania is a great love of mine but this is a truly rare Castlevania game in the sense that it's not been used on Radio Tribute already which uh, certainly a great many have but also it's not one that I own uh, because um, yeah, I didn't have a Game Boy growing up and here's the funny thing I may or may not have played this game because, it, it, yes, because it, in those days when it would be the end of school and you'd get that silly day where everyone just brought their own toys in and did nothing but play, sort of with uh, exchange toys and play with everyone else's stuff, uh, I would always go for the handhelds. I played like a bunch of Game Gear games and other people's Game Boy Gears and Game Boy games, and I definitely played a portable Castlevania game when I was a child at primary school and I seem to remember having a good time with it which would certainly augur the direction of Belmont's Revenge as opposed to the adventure which is widely derided uh, so that's the big thing is that this was uh, meant to be a really big step up from the adventure which really is regarded as a, a great low point for the series uh, kind of filled with kind of technical issues and dreadfully slow character no sub weapons, all sorts of, uh, of terribleness. And of course, the sad part is that that is the portable Castlevania game that we do have on the 3DS Virtual Console, while this one is not yet available. Um, yeah, but at least one of them is, so that there is a precedent for Game Boy Castlevania games. That is nice, but it's just, it's so. I mean, it's become so moribund now for actual Game Boy games. I mean, I think in Europe, the last Game Boy game that was released on the 3DS Virtual Console was Mole Mania back in October of last year. That's a long time ago now. I mean, it's it's only the service has been going for just you know, pretty much two years now, and uh, you know we've spent eight months of that without a single black and white Game Boy game over here in Europe and it's not much better in America I think it was the Kirby puzzle game uh, Star Stacker back in uh, December of last year or something I mean it's 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 really you know, they've, they've transitioned to the NES games now seemingly yeah I'm not a fan of that I'm not a fan of that, especially because we're going to get them on Wii U again as well. Exactly. You know, it feels like I would be much happier to, to focus on the Game Boy games. I mean, they've had some Game Boy Color games, a handful, in the first half of this year, but I definitely want more of the black and white games exactly for this sort of game. Uh, because there were some really great uh, Game Boy games that I you know, either got to play sparingly, uh, leeching off other people, or didn't get to play at all. Sure. 
and uh, I mean, listen to the music. It's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't have even really thought you could do that on a Game Boy when I was a kid, you know, looking at the Game Boy, how kind of yeah, primitive the graphics look and all that. I never would have thought the, the music would compare so favourably with the NES Castlevanias, but they really do. It's it's great stuff, and uh, this is kind of notable as a Castlevania game that has a Mega Man-style structure to the levels in that you get, like, four castles to start with, and you can just pick which ones you want to do in whatever order, uh, and then you get the, the final battle after that, which kind of brings me to the answer to the, the hint question. Uh, so, in this game, you're trying to... You are Christopher Belmont trying to rescue your son, which, again, this is one of those names that I've never heard uttered aloud, so I'm just going to Solier Belmont. Uh, okay. And, uh, but, of course, his great-grandson would be Simon Belmont, the hero of the uh, original NES Castlevania, at least according to the latest version of the timeline. I did kind of hesitate to use that question just because, you know, there are some kind of... Uh, Inconsistencies there when Igarashi decides to uh, omit Castlevania Legends from existence. You know, I mean, it's only by it being featured on this podcast that there's still proof that it exists. You know, <laughs> the Castlevania Legends, but I don't know whether that's for the best, considering it's a less than sterling reputation. We got one last game here, and yes. uh, well, Greg knows what it is. Oh, I do, but uh, it should be interesting for people to hear this music.
quite a medieval sound uh, uh, for that song to kick us off here. Whether or not that uh, put our listeners in the right frame of mind to guess this, I'm not going to say. I was quite a sombre, uh, almost mournful uh, song there, but uh, trust me, the next one will cheer you up, and uh, we also have a hint question that might help you discern which game this is, if it sounds foreign to your ears. Uh, So, the design for this game's protagonist is said to have suspicious similarities to which character from an as-yet-unreleased title?
Well, that was uh, suitably grandiose for a finale, don't you think? Sure. Uh, <laughs> so is, is that like repurposed music with like additional lyrics added or what, what What was that we just listened to there? Well, yeah, so this is Pandora's Tower for Wii, uh, the last of the Operation Rainfall games uh, to finally arrive in uh, North America as it did uh, this year, wasn't it, in, in North America? That's right. And, I think uh, so. Yeah, and uh, it was last year in Europe and then the year before that in Japan. But anyway, uh, so yeah, Pandora's Tower, uh, I should address the uh, (laughs) the hint question, which is pretty funny actually, Uh, kind of relates to how long ago uh, some of these things uh, were revealed. Uh, So it was noticed when the box art was first uh, revealed uh, for Pandora's Tower in Japan that the protagonist, Aeron, uh, seemed to have a, a very suspicious similarity to the person that had been revealed as the hero for Final Fantasy Versus 13, Noctis. Nice. Like, there were side-by-side comparisons of the artwork. Like, he's got the same nose, he's got the same chin, <laughs> all this stuff. Uh, and, of course, that has still not come out and will now be Final Fantasy 15, uh, we learned uh, on the... On the on the next gen system, so I think that's kind of hilarious that apparently his character design was kind of uh, appropriated <laughs> right in the middle of this giant chasm between when it was first revealed and uh, when it may actually ultimately come out as Final Fantasy 15. But yeah, in terms of so that song uh, at the end there uh, is. The, the melody comes from a, a piano piece uh, that was written by Franz Liszt, uh, the third of his Liebstrom pieces. Uh, so, and that that is one of the central themes in Pandora's Tale, one of the central melodies that that is u- used in various different orchestrations and pieces. And it, it is uh, uh, given that Liebstrom uh, translates to "dream of love." It is about the love, the bond between uh, your character Aaron and the girl. Uh, most people have probably heard anything about. Pandora Sour know that she's been cursed and she's going to turn into this dreadful purple monster if you don't go to the towers and fetch back juicy monster meat uh, <laughs> for her to eat uh, <laughs> at first reluctantly, eventually uh, <laughs> with absolutely savage pleasure uh, <laughs> and she wolf it down and that sort of holds back the curse until it can ultimately be broken um, so it's interesting to me when you get these these cases where you actually use uh, your famous classical themes and incorporate them uh, into your own music because it always reminds me of, of, of the, the case of 2001 A Space Odyssey obviously an all-time classic film uh, one, one of my favorites which you're very memorably uses things like the Blue Danube for the you know the, the sequences of the space station and all that kind of stuff now what's what's always funny to me is that Kubrick actually had an entire original score written for that film completed by one of the people that he'd worked with a number of times before called Alex North on stuff like Spartacus you know so this was somebody trusted he knew him he got him to write the score uh, and he was an accomplished uh, film composer in, in his own right uh, outside of Kubrick anyway and then Kubrick just decided no I'm going to jump the whole thing and apparently poor old Alex North actually went to the premiere not knowing that his score had got cut out it must have been absolutely gutting uh, but basically uh, you know, he decided to uh, Kubrick decided to go with these uh, pre-existing classical pieces based because he thought they were better the exact quote is uh, I've got here. However good our best film composer may be, they are not a Beethoven, a Mozart, or a Brahms. 
why use music which is less good when there is such a multitude of great orchestral music available from the past and from our own time? Which is a very interesting way of looking at things. I'm not entirely kind of comfortable with it, really. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, I mean, again, I really do feel sorry for North, who got kind of really rudely bumped out of being in an all-time classic, having his work in an all-time classic film. But you know, the idea that you know, well, this this music is just superior. You know, you, however good someone can be, they're just not that good as someone who's an all-time genius. Uh, but you know, there's the, also the question of you know, how suitable is it for the film? You know, it wasn't sure. purposefully composed. It's like, well, you know, John Williams might not be Mozart, but could could anything have been more perfect than what he wrote for Jaws? Right. Yeah, and I think that's it's the difference when you're writing music to kind of help tell the story, or where you're kind of having the music to just augment the imagery. And I think that's really what Kubrick was doing with with 2001. You know, sort of lending this sort of serenity and grandeur to what were just effect shots that they probably didn't think would necessarily look all that mesmerizing by themselves. Uh, but with um, with Pandora's Tower, I do feel like there may have been a certain thing of like, this whole game is about love between these two characters and their bond and all that. You know, we need a strong theme. Uh, it's used a lot in the conversations that you have, the almost sort of dating sim style uh, part of the gameplay. We talk to... Elena and give her gifts and you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so that theme, you'll be hearing it a lot if you ever play the game. And I kind of feel like they must, well, you know, if the great composer's already written a celebrated piece about this kind of topic, maybe we should just go with that <laughs> uh, and, and not try and write something that's more suitable ourselves. Um, and then the other thing is, if you remember the last time I was on, we did uh, Parodius that also has a lot of public sure. domain stuff. And the reason for that was just that in the original game, they didn't the basic composer had no time so he was forced to do this and I think with Pandora's Tower that probably played a part too because there's lots of aspects of the game that don't exude the highest degree of polish or production values or, you know, I mean it was developed by uh, Gambari on who I think most famous for doing like fighting games so this was pretty soundly outside their wheelhouse as far as I was aware but I mean I do think they made a good fist of it. I mean, there's a lot of things I like about this game, in particular the way the gameplay, which is you know kind of third-person character action type uh, battling, is augmented by the use of the pointer, uh, where you're kind of using it to uh, you can steal weapons off enemies by pointing at them, you know, whip at particular spots because you've got this chain-like weapon which invites a lot of uh, comparisons to Castlevania naturally so you know that, that was just something I always liked on Wii was where you took a kind of pre-existing game style and really augmented it in a positive and intuitive way with the pointer mm-hmm. I mean it's yeah. not as if it d- it did happen quite a lot I mean there were, there were plenty of games that did happen like I mean Sinded Punishment 2 is a good example some of the first person shooters but I always feel like it could have been done more uh, I, I, I'm sad that probably now with the gamepad on Wii even though you still have the Wii remote and it will be used you know, more featured in games like Pikmin 3 but in general not many games are going to be built around pointer functionality anymore are they um, and I think that's a shame because it does lend a fluidity uh, to certain aspects of gameplay that can't really be offered by uh, analog sticks and uh, th- this was, that was one of the things that re- I really liked about what they did in Pandora's Tower would you say that the um, sort of the dungeon design um, holds up to some other games like uh, Zelda? 
Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the, the comparisons with Zelda are pretty natural because you know, there is puzzle solving, combat, bosses, you know, the, the, these dungeons that you go into to, to kind of uh, fetch the meat uh, from are, are kind of quite Zelda like. But I mean, it, it really is a tale of two halves because you get the first uh, set of towers that you go to that have the you know, pretty cliche elemental themes attached to them that you'll be familiar with if you've played a Zelda game. Uh, but then the next half not only share the same themes but actually share a lot of the same concepts and room layouts that's like it's almost like the master quest version of the the first part uh, it's not that bad i mean that, that is an overstatement but definitely it seems like you know they they didn't have enough ideas for a game of the length that they kind of envisioned so then they strung it out a bit longer and the bosses are still good in that second set of, uh, of uh, dungeons, but the level, des- the familiarity of, of the themes and some of the level design concepts definitely takes some of the pleasure out of that second half. Especially as you've got at that point, you've kind of probably got your, the, the, your head around this whole time limit thing. You know, the fact is, your the girlfriend is going to you know, turn into this monster so you've got to make periodic trips back to make sure that she doesn't do that even before you like kill the boss very often you'll have to journey back to your home base and the levels are designed very much with that in mind they have kind of like we were talking about Skyward Sword that backwards and forwards thing you know like you'll solve some puzzles do this and that and then you'll be able to sort of kick down a ladder that lets you kick skip a whole bunch of steps so I, I didn't find that requirement that if you wanted to maintain this relationship well and get the best possible ending that you had to make trips back and forth I, did, I, did, I was okay with that I know some people are very averse to any kind of time constraints in games uh, but I, I was quite happy with that but just the fact that the, the, the variety and the creativity seemed to kind of run out in the dungeon designs that was the real problem although I would say the, ver- the very last one kind of is quite cunning because it almost merges them into one in a light world dark world type scenario and that is actually really quite a good last dungeon but I fear that some people who played it might have lost interest uh, before they actually got to that one. You mentioned Castlevania and a lot of what you're saying actually kind of reminds me of uh, Castlevania Portrait of Ruin. Yeah, that's another good, because that's something that uh, Iger was very fond of, the Upside Down Castle, you know, yeah, I mean, in Symphony of the Night as well, you know, where you kind of repurpose it a bit and change it a little bit and then kind of double the size of the game. Yeah, like, yeah it, it, the, the Castlevania comparisons are very much warranted. Um, you know, just the way you use this whip weapon that you, you know, swinging across chasms and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it almost could be like a, the, the the 3D Castlevania game on Wii we never got uh, Judgment being the only sort of vaguely 3D game and then Adventure Rebirth is uh, somewhat better but strictly old school Uh, but yeah I mean I, I kind of I mean it's it shares certain similarities with Lords of Shadow as well in that you know it's got a bit of that God of War style in there with the fixed cameras and the you know the, the third person battling so uh, it kind of it, it's almost it could argue it's a bit more Castlevania than Lords of Shadow is in that way well, uh, we're, we're clocking in at close to two hours here. We, we really do need to wrap this up. Greg, uh, I want to thank you again for preparing 
pretty much the entire lineup tonight and uh, making my job a lot easier. I, I do love uh, tr- going through songs and thinking of uh, the right variety and all that to uh, help people get a, a sense of these games. Uh, but thank you for indulging me, really, is the main thing. Again, I, I brought it up at the beginning of this episode. I do want to highly encourage you, if you did not check out uh, the E3 RFN coverage with uh, James, Greg, and, and John Lindemann, uh, do check that out. It's a fantastic podcast. And, uh, you know, if, if you love Greg, there's there's more of him there. So uh, <laughs> check that out. And of course, listener requests, uh, I personally would like to ask for them because I always like to hear what everyone else has on their minds uh, for songs. So when I'm not going to take up four out of the five slots, uh, forgive me that. Will you? <laughs> uh, we got a bunch of great listener requests over the last couple of weeks. Keep them coming. I, I, you know, I keep a giant list of requests and I, I do mind them more and more uh, as, uh, as the years go on. So please, 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 please send me your requests. I promise I will use them eventually. Yeah, with that, uh, let's wrap this up. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for having me.
The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword is copyright 2011 Nintendo. Vortex is copyright 1994 Argonaut Software. The World Ends With You is copyright 2008 Square Enix. Castlevania 2 Belmont's Revenge is copyright 1991 Konami. Pandora's Tower is copyright 2012 Nintendo Gambarion.